Gracious and holy God, we come to your house this morning. And we know that while you are everywhere, we feel that when we are here as the body of Christ, that you are with us in special ways because we are together in special ways in your house. Bless us as we hear your word this day and we take your message with us as we go out into the world. We thank you for this time and this word that comes before us in Jesus' name. The word of the Lord comes to us for this morning's message from three places, from Exodus, from 1 Kings, and from the Gospel of Luke. Hear these words. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. From 1 Kings and the prophet Elijah. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel as king over Aram. You shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shapheth, and Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazel Yehu shall kill, and whoever escapes from the sword of Yehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And here from the Gospel of Luke, the temptation of Christ. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, 
he was famished. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Man, if you thought that was a big chunk of Scripture being thrown at you all at once, just wait till next Sunday. Um, <clears throat> um, you know, you've heard of the, the freshman 15, right, the weight that all college students inevitably gain the first year in college because they can afford nothing but junk food and they've got no time to do any kind of exercise, right? So my, my first year of college, right, we, we had to live on campus, and, you know, it's here at a Corpus. The, the gym was like a five-minute walk from my dorm, and so my friends and I, since we were dirt poor and couldn't afford to do anything else for fun, uh, we went to the gym every single night for a whole year, right? So I got, like, this skinny. If you ever have a chance to see pictures of when I first started dating Mercedes, I looked really thin, and she made me fat. <coughs> so, you know, that, that whole first year, you know, we, we exercising every single day, lifting weights every single day, and, and I lost a lot of weight, but the weird thing was, by the end of the year, I wasn't actually any stronger than I had been when I started out. I, I, yeah, it was really frustrating. I, I could not lift up any more weight than I had been able to lift in the fall. And I didn't realize until a few years later that what I'd been doing wrong was working out every single day. Right? If you're lifting weights, you're actually supposed to wait like two full days in between exercising so that your body has enough time to recover. You can even go three full days if you want. If you don't, your muscles just don't have enough time to not only recover from what you've already put them through, but to build up additional strength to go again. So you're supposed to wait 48 to 72 hours between lifting anything heavy, right? And lo and behold, when I actually started doing that, you wouldn't know to look at me, but I do like going to the gym. I just also like to eat. Um, you can enjoy both things, it's fine. But, but when I actually started doing what you're supposed to do and, and waiting at least a full 48 hours between going to the gym, I started getting stronger, like really quickly. Like every time you went, you noticed you were a bit stronger than you were the last time. It was incredible, right? Lo and behold, it's almost as if doing what your body's designed to do actually works better than trying to do something it's not built to do. All of creation is, is really built this way, right? Everything is designed to need some kind of rest, right? 
Every aspect of your life, this is true. You're, you need sleep every night. If you go too long without sleep, it can actually kill you. But the weird thing is, no one actually knows why we have to sleep. Right? It has not been explained by science why our body even needs to sleep. And yet we know that we do need it because if we don't, we don't function as well. And the longer we go without it, the, the less well we function. But scientists and, and doctors still cannot figure out just exactly why it's even necessary. It's just something that's built into the way we are. We are built to need it. Everything else in creation works the same way, right? Farmers will tell you you can't plant the same field too many times in a row. You have to let it rest or you'll ruin the soil. Sometimes the way that, that rest looks in the rest of creation is a bit different than what you and I might think of it as, right? So, so out in California, it's famous for the wildfires that come through, these big raging infernos that eat up everything in their path and they're almost impossible to stop. But you know why those happen there and not really anywhere else in the country? It's because they try to stop them too hard. You see, that landscape is designed to burn. It's meant to burn. Everything in it is built to burn from time to time. It needs to be burned. And when you spend all this time and effort putting out the wildfires and, and preventing them from ever starting, what happens is the undergrowth in that forest builds up and builds up and all the dead leaf litter builds up and builds up until you've got all this fuel for a fire, so much fuel for a fire that when it finally starts, you can't put it out. When what should really be happening is smaller and smaller fires periodically to clear all of that away. It's actually how it's supposed to work. There are, there are pine trees in that forest whose seeds will not germinate unless they are exposed to the heat of a forest fire. It's supposed to burn, right? The burning is that landscape's form of rest. It's a rest from growth and from production and from all the other things that life does. It's, it's break. And it clears out the undergrowth, and lets it rest for a bit before it starts again. And because people don't let it do that, it boils over into this raging wildfire that is far, far more destructive than what it would have otherwise been. This bit about the Sabbath. Have you ever noticed it's actually one of the Ten Commandments? Right? And, and just so you're aware, Christians do have to follow the Ten Commandments still, right? It's not... Right? It's not like, oh, it's in the Old Testament, doesn't apply to me. No, you still have to do it, right? You don't get a free pass. It's, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's not just a suggestion. It's something God literally commands his people to do. We are expected to follow it. It's also the longest one. Have you noticed? No other commandment requires this much explanation, right? We apparently understand very well how to not commit murder. We're, we're good at that, I hope. Um, right? We're, we're mostly good at not stealing. We don't have to have it explained to us what it means to not lie about people, but, but we require a lot of detail when it comes to take a break, right? Listen to it. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, no child labor allowed, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. So God says, not only are you not going to work, but you can't make your kids do the chores. Um, if you have servants, they can't work that day. 
even the people who live in your town who do not worship the same God you do, they don't work that day either. Right? Just because they don't believe in me doesn't mean they get a free pass. Now, we're bad about this today, right? Most of us don't actually do this. But think of the first people who heard this. All of them were either farmers or shepherds. And this is, of course, in a society that doesn't have any concept of weekends or vacation days or things like that. But, but especially for farmers and shepherds, right, one, one single day of not working could be catastrophic. If you're trying to grow grain, right, one day of not working, something could happen and ruin your entire crop if you're not out there. Or imagine you're a shepherd and it's the Sabbath day and you hear the sound of wolves coming into your sheep. What are you going to do? Because according to this, you can't go out and stop it. Now that's bold. Ultimately, what this commandment is doing is putting a limit on your ability to trust in yourself. It's forcing you to rely on God to a degree most of us are uncomfortable with. This is really what a lot of the Old Testament laws do, by the way. They put limits on things even though it sounds like it's giving you permission, right? It sounds like it's giving you permission to take a day off, but really, most of us don't need that. We need permission. We, 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 we would rather not take a day off, right? We would rather work. It's limiting our ability to overwork. Just like there's a, there's a law later on that's you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The idea being, right, if someone causes you to lose an eye, you get to take one of theirs out in, in vengeance. And it sounds kind of mean and barbaric, but if you really think about it, if someone gouges out your eye, you probably don't want to stop at just taking their eye back, right? The, the natural desire there is to do something worse. It's a, it puts a limit on what you can do to get back at someone. This puts a limit on how much you can take care of yourself. And frankly, we don't take it seriously. Now, our Jewish brothers and sisters usually do, especially with the Orthodox Jews. In fact, there, there are Jewish communities where on the Sabbath day, you don't even turn on the lights because flicking the switch is work. Now, I think that's probably going too far. I don't think this should count as work. Um, but, but think about what they also do, right? All the food for that day is cooked the day before. Mom's not cooking on the Sabbath. All the chores are done the day before. Every ounce of work you could possibly do, every, every chore, every housework, everything is done the day before. So the, on the Sabbath day, you spend the entire time, well, you go, to, you go to synagogue, right? You worship, you pray, you spend time with your family, you spend time with God. That's it. That was true even, even back then, right? Even in the days before refrigeration, you cooked all the food the day beforehand and just trusted that God would keep you alive, right? Because you weren't going to cook on the day of the Sabbath. It wasn't allowed. Everything's made the day before. And as soon as the sun goes down on Friday, you're done. There's no more work till sunset the following day. And again, we're bad at this. Most of us don't follow it. Most of us, I would guess, don't even 
really see the full importance of it. But that's what this story for Elijah is for. So Elijah is up on the mountain. And the background to this story is that before this happened, uh, Elijah is, is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's got arguably the hardest job of any of the prophets because he is, he is the prophet during the reign of King Ahab, who is not a character in a Moby Dick novel. Uh, he is a real king of ancient Israel and, and is arguably the worst one of them all. The things he does, the, the, the evil ways in which he leads his people exceed any other king of Israel. And his wife, Queen Jezebel, is just as bad and has, uh, through her embrace of, of the Canaanite religion and worshiping of the god Baal, has led the entire kingdom away from the faith they were born in and into the worship of the Canaanite gods. So Elijah has this big showdown with the prophets of the god Baal. And, and, and there's this little competition set up, right? The idea is, okay, you guys... You guys sacrifice a bull and I'll sacrifice a bull and we'll each put our bull on the altar and then all we'll do is we will each pray to our gods and see which one of our gods lights the altar on fire. And whoever gets the fire first wins. I wish I could do that kind of stuff now, right? People would get mad if I tried it though. No one wants to see you burning a bull outside the church. Don't ask how I know. So... So he lets, he lets the other prophets go first, right? He lets them sacrifice their bull and they put it on the altar and there's you know, dozens of them, hundreds possibly even, and they're surrounding the altar and they're all praying and chanting and going through all of the, the various rituals and rites that they think they need to do to pray to their God and they do this for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and nothing happens. And finally, it's Elijah's turn, and, and he you know, puts his bull on the altar, and he pours a bunch of water on it. He digs a trench around the altar, this little moat, and he pours so much water on top of the altar that it runs down and fills the moat around it. Everything is completely drenched and waterlogged. It should not be possible for it to burn. Elijah says, Lord, set it on fire, and lo and behold, God sets it on fire. And it's this miracle, and it's profound. And all the people who are watching, suddenly it clicks for them that these prophets over here have been leading them astray. And they rise up in a righteous fury and they kill all the prophets of the Canaanite gods. Unfortunately for Elijah, Queen Jezebel hears of this and immediately sends her soldiers to hunt him down and kill him. So he flees to the wilderness and that's where we're at. And God says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says, well, I've been very zealous for the, for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. Now, the irony, of course, is they actually just killed the prophets of the false god with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. So God says, okay, come, come out on the side of the mountain. And then, then comes the mighty wind, and then the fire, and then the earthquake, and then, in the sound of sheer silence, God says again to Elijah, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, you remember when you were young and your mom had to ask you the same question twice? And you knew you should prepare for death at that point, <laughs> right? You knew it was it. That's what's going on here, right? Don't make God ask you the same question twice, right? What are you doing here, Elijah? And, and it's not a typo. Elijah answers the exact same way, word for word. 
So God tells him, go. Return on your way to Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Aram, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha as prophet in your place. In other words, God says, okay, Elijah, you're done. That's it. Your ministry is over. And he ends it, right? I'll leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed down to Baal. In other words, while you're sitting here moaning and complaining about how you alone are left, there are 7,000 people in Israel who still serve their God. And they still need to profit, and you aren't going to be the one to do it. You're done. And you know, it, it occurs to me when I read that passage that this time on the mountain is the first time you ever see Elijah take a break from his ministry. It's the first time he stops working. It's the first time that he ever actually goes away and finds solitude and silence to hear the voice of the God for whom he is a prophet. And he's waited so long and done so much without ever stopping that all God has to say to him now is, you're done. Now it's not all bad because what happens next is he goes and he anoints Elisha as prophet in his place and then he ascends to heaven, right? He doesn't even die. He just ascends. Imagine working so hard you're too tired to die. God just has to take you up, right? That's what happens to him. He's too tired to let himself die. He doesn't ever take a break and see this is what happens. He can't even see the situation for what it is, right? He's just won this incredible victory. He's convinced hundreds if not thousands of people to turn their backs on the false god of Canaan and worship the god of Israel. And he runs off into the wilderness and all he can say is, I alone am left and they're trying to kill me. See, that's what happens. That's what happens when you don't take a Sabbath. That's what happens when you let yourself go too hard for too long. And so we get to Jesus. And this story is kind of weird, right? He, you know, he, he's baptized. The, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove and lands on him. And it's this wonderful, beautiful moment. But then before he ever begins his ministry, before he goes out and starts healing people and feeding the hungry and all of the wonderful, exciting things he does, he goes off into the desert and hides. And apparently doesn't even take any food with him. And it's kind of bizarre, right? You have to imagine the people who had just watched him get baptized were expecting a bit more. And it's not... It's not like a restful time in the desert, right? He's not off on some lovely spiritual retreat from which he'll return renewed and rejuvenated. He's not out of, I mean, he's just literally in the desert being tempted by the devil for 40 days. But you know, it, it occurs to me that the things he's tempted with, if, if he had not gone off into the desert to face those down, they're exactly the sort of thing that could have snuck up on him in the midst of his ministry and overpowered him. 
He could easily have been so distracted by all the other things that were going on. And he would have missed how he was giving in to temptation. So really, there's, there's two purposes for the Sabbath. One is, is simply the act of rest. Letting ourselves stop and recover and recuperate and come back stronger than we were before. But the other, the other, is to allow ourselves to see ourselves and to see our God as we truly are. To identify those areas in our life where temptation is creeping in to lead us astray. See, otherwise we can easily get so busy in our daily lives and in all the things we have to get done. Even those of us who, like our job is to be a pastor and do Christian things all day long, right? We can easily get so distracted by all the things on our to-do list, all the things on our calendar, all the meetings we have to go to, that we don't even see how temptation is pulling us off the course until it's too late. So we are built. We're built for a Sabbath. I've preached about prayer last week, right? And, and urge you, well, I'll be preaching about prayer for a while. I urge you, right, to take 10 minutes out of the day, every day, just for prayer. How many of you actually managed to do it? Okay, that's not, look, I'm your pastor, I have to be honest with you. I forgot about it until Wednesday morning. Um, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, taking, it doesn't seem like much. 10 minutes doesn't seem like a long chunk of time, but it's hard to actually carve that out of your day and set it aside just for prayer. But I'm, I'm about to up the ante on you. Because like I said, we are really bad at taking a Sabbath. Terrible at it, in fact. But your challenge this week is to actually do it. Take a day. It doesn't have to be a Sunday, right? I mean, my Sabbath is Friday because lo and behold, I work on Sundays. Right? Believe it or not, this is not rest. Right? Take a Sabbath. doesn't matter what day it is. All that matters is you have a day set aside where you're not working. You're not taking your work home with you. You're not doing a bunch of chores and housework around the house. You are just resting. You see, ultimately, Sabbath is an act of prayer. And I'm not saying you should be praying for the whole 24 hours, um, but if you do, I want to hear about it because you deserve some kind of medal for that. But it is itself an act of prayer because it puts you in connection with God. And you can begin the day with prayer, you can pray periodically throughout it, but the idea, the idea is to, to drop what you're doing and make time for the things that are most important, that draw you closest to God. Spending time with Him, spending time reading Scripture, spending time with family and friends, right? building community, the things that actually make you a disciple of Jesus. See, we have on this banner right here, right? loving people, transforming lives, making disciples. That, that making disciples phrase does not apply exclusively to other people. It also includes the people who are already here. We're making disciples out of ourselves. Because we can't do the other two, and we certainly can't disciple other people if we aren't first tending to our own discipleship. So, so the day of Sabbath, it's all about being a better disciple. It's so easy for us to think that we don't have time to take a Sabbath. But the reality is we don't have time not to. You will find, if you do it, 
it's almost like you have more hours during the rest of the week. You know, they've even done studies now, like researching how important the 40-hour work week is, and they found that when you cut back the hours your employees work to 35 or 30 hours a week, they're actually more productive. Right? Taking time out of their work schedule makes them more productive. And it's almost as if God knew what he was doing when he told us to take a break, right? Shocking. Look, we're bad at taking a Sabbath because we don't want to admit that we can take the time, right? We're afraid, we're afraid of relying on God to take care of the things we think we need to get done on that day. But the reality is, we need it. We need that more than we need anything else. And you're probably going to find that if you actually do it, if you, if you are able to consistently take a Sabbath day each week, and I know it's hard, right? Even, even you retirees, I know how you people are. Y'all are busier than me, right? You will fill your day up with project after project after project after project, and you won't take a break. If you find that you, you are able to take a Sabbath every week, what's going to happen is all of a sudden finding, finding 10 minutes a day every other day to pray is going to become a little easier. You're going to feel less busy and less pressured. And you'll begin to see God at work in your life in new and powerful ways. So this week, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.